0: This morning we'll look at the entire chapter together, chapter 6, 1 through 19. As I read along, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now it happened when it was heard by Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not made the doors to stand in the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Kepharim, in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it? Come down to you. And they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I responded to them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his young man to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is heard among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king. According to these words, you have also set up prophets to call out in Jerusalem concerning you a king is in Judah. So now it will be heard by the king according to these words. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him, saying, Such words as you are saying have not been done, but you are devising them in your own heart. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will become limp in doing the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined at home. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple. For they are coming to kill you. And they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple just to live? I will not go in. Then I recognized that surely God had not sent him, but he spoke his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become afraid and act accordingly and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. Now it happened that when all our enemies heard of it, and all the surrounding nations saw it, their countenance fell. And they knew that it was from our God that this work had been accomplished. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were sworn by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Barakiah, as a wife. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and bringing my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. And as we often do, I will pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we need the food that comes only from your word this morning. We come before you as a people needing that spiritual nourishment. Nourishment that will affect us physically, that will help our bodies. But it is chiefly pointed towards our souls. And we know that this is the nourishment that only the Holy Spirit can give. So we ask that you would move among us this morning by the power of the Spirit Defeat us according to your word. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, I've got a confession to make. Last week, I had a brother here at church give me a much needed exhortation. That's what he called it, anyway. It was more along the lines of an admonishment, which is like an exhortation. ...that on the tail end of it kind of comes with a zing. Getcha. I had received some negative feedback about some teaching of mine... ...from folks outside of our church, and to be honest, I wasn't handling it well. I admit that I had said some wildly controversial things... ...and used abusive language like, "...husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church." Lead your wives, and, and then I also mentioned that as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in every way to their own husbands. Both of those thoughts, not original to me, they come from Ephesians 5. Yes, I am aware of the chagrin generated by these sorts of concepts today, but I still for some reason got down when I, I got this negative feedback. I let it get to me. And that's what caused this brother to reach out to me. He reminded me, in situations like this, to act and behave the way that Christ commanded me to. That when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, that is Jesus, to stop, and the first thing to do is to acknowledge that I am a blessed man. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Instead of sharing my discouragement with others, I ought to be spreading the celebration that Christ commanded to be spread when he said, in the following verse, Rejoice and be glad, for your name is written in heaven. Well, the admonishment was very needed and also very helpful. And I say the same thing to you this morning, church. Don't be afraid to give hard words. To one another. We need this kind of frankness with one another. It was something else though that my trusted reprimander said that got me thinking. He told me that my humility was getting in my way of obeying Jesus. Think about that for a minute. My humility was getting in the way of my obeying Jesus. I knew as soon as he said it, he was right. I knew exactly what he was talking about. That was the issue I was dealing with. Chris, knock off this pseudo-humility, this false humility, the kind that tries to think as low of yourself as you possibly can. Compare what you're doing with what the Bible commands, and if the accusation doesn't match, drop it like it's hot. Submitting yourself and your actions to the word as it is written is not pride. It's the essence of true humility. Well, as I studied the text for this morning, the thought crossed my mind that Nehemiah would probably not have been considered a very humble man by today's church standards. Ezra, maybe. Nehemiah, that guy was a bit proud. That's not only wrong, but it's as slanderous as the accusations brought by Sanballat and Tobiah this morning. And chapter 6 is going to show us why, beloved. Having dealt with the in-house issue of enslaving one's neighbors back in chapter 5, Nehemiah has to turn back to external pressures from his neighbors around the block. In verse 1, we're told that the wall has been finished. They still need to hang the doors and the gates, as you see there. But the enemies of God are running out of time to stop these Zionists, and they're getting desperate. They're they're running out of options. Now, what do we do? What do we do now that the work is almost completed? You remember back in chapter 2 and 4, they tried mockery. There was an attempted military coup and campaign against Israel, also in chapter 4. And now they're left with one final option. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, from Mark 14, verse 27. Let's go right for the commander. Let's get this Nehemiah guy out of the way, and then the work will have to cease. You see that right there in your text. Now, to do this, they employ several different tactics, and I'm actually going to take this text in about three different groups to look at these tactics. In verses 1 through 4... You might consider this a tactic of entrapment. The first thing that they try and do is get him alone to, by his own words, do him harm. The Valley of Ono was about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and although it was probably at that time considered neutral territory, it was well away from anyone who would truly care about Nehemiah's safety in this matter. It's a good idea that you should take caution when you're gathering together in private meetings, especially when that private meeting takes place in, a, in an area called Oh No. I thought that was really funny. Couldn't get over that this week. Nehemiah was no fool. He smelled the rotten eggs. He knew that these guys wanted to pick a fight. And all the telltale signs... Were there there, and so he refused, and they sent again, and he refused four times in a row. Now I'll come back to that in just a minute. You look at verses five through nine. There's a slander campaign, or a smear campaign that's attempted straight from the devil's mouth. This is where the devil gets his name. We've talked about the slanderer. Very public and politically incriminating slander directed towards Nehemiah the kind our brother Matt Cook at Maynardville Fellowship calls the slander-mongering. Sanballat and Tobiah, and Gashmu also saith it, popular book title, bring a charge of rebellion and insurrection against Nehemiah and also accuse him of setting up the city of Jerusalem as his own little fort or base of operations to rebel against the king. Then you see in verses 10 through 14 a temptation tactic that's used against him. A man named Shemaiah attempts to frighten Nehemiah into sinning against the Lord. He weaves a tale about a potential midnight murder so that Nehemiah will stay awake at night thinking of safer spaces. He tells him to run instead to the house of God where he can find protection. Nehemiah, who is not a priest nor a Levite, of course, is not permitted to enter the temple. Also of note, and this didn't strike me until this week, but he was cupbearer, you know, to Artaxerxes, the emperor of Persia. And it's highly possible that because he served so closely with the king, he was also a eunuch, which would have made him doubly ineligible for temple access because Deuteronomy 23 says that men who are missing man parts, can't enter the temple of God. Had he fallen for this, he would have certainly compromised his character and discredited his leadership. Now, I want to come back to Nehemiah's responses in just a minute. But the first thing that should hit you with these attempts to discredit Nehemiah and his ministry, the attempts to strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep, is how absolutely impotent the efforts to thwart the progress of the kingdom of God truly are. Now, you might say, that's the first thing that I should get out of this? I mean, at this point, these folks are on attempt number what to stop this work? They have, like small children, I've mentioned this in past weeks, thrown fits, they've called names, and they've threatened to come and put up a fight. The first series of volleys in this chapter, those first four verses, is my favorite part of kind of these back and forth exchanges. In essence, the people are communicating something along these lines. Nehemiah, we have railed and reviled you. We've insulted both your leadership and intelligence. And having insinuated your ineptitude at building and being ourselves a forerunner of anti-Semitic thought in the annals of history, don't worry, we promise to attend an ethnic sensitivity workshop, we are hereby sending you a personal invitation to come talk with us about some shady business in a questionable part of town, and we want you to believe that this is really for your good. Kind of sounds like the IRS coming to your front door saying, don't worry, sir, we're here to help you. I don't know about that. These folks have absolutely no ground left to stand on. And and that's what's so comical about this. They try the same message four times. Now, I want the young men to consider. Guys, if if you want to go out with a girl and you ask her and she refuses, that's life. It happens. If you ask her a second time, you might want to check your intelligence. If you ask her four times over, you are a desperate man. And and look at the enemies of God here. I mean, when facing men and women who are being obedient to God and gladly taking responsibility for their lives, the enemies of God are truly helpless. And Christians all over the West have given up the chase to the gates of hell Because a bunch of vile, God-hating, sodomy parade-attending individuals tempt, entrap, and slander. They employ these same tactics even today. And they have nothing to back it up. What do you mean? They've got the state on their side, they have the school systems, they have the libraries and the online empires and the national sports teams. That does sound strong, and in our day it looks like the opposition is stacked heavily against us. However, it is the Word of God that tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. Now, I want to go off on what may sound like a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but this does have a point for this text. We lose our eternal perspective because we've been bred to be materialists. In the visible realm, we see that everything does appear to be stacked in the enemy's favor. But in the invisible realm, which, by the way, is still physical. That's why I use those terms. You think spiritual, physical. Don't think that way. Think visible, invisible. Both physical realms, one is visible, one is not. In the invisible realm, our enemies have limited resources today. This is true because their father, the devil, last week's Easter sermon, has been bound. All of his minions have lost their unrestricted rulership over the various territories of this world. The gods, little g, created beings, the Bible uses that term, are now under the thumb of King Jesus. Before Christ came, Satan and other created beings held tremendous sway in the affairs of the earth and of men. And I want to do a deep dive sometime, maybe through a sermon, into this invisible realm idea. We just don't read our Bibles this way. But this morning, I want to highlight one thing. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, told his disciples, that he was coming to earth to plunder the strong man's house. But in order to do that, he had to first bind the strong man. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb, the shackles went on the forces of darkness. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new ruler. They lost tremendous control over the globe. The ability to deceive the nations, they have no longer. Yes, it does appear to us that the nations are raging against Christ today, and it would appear like never before. It's unprecedented. And though these small g gods, again, they're created beings, may be collaborating together to reinstitute child sacrifice and all kinds of sexual perversions. By the way, there was a pagan deity over 2,000 years ago who, get this, had the ability to change genders. It's been around for a long time. It's not new. And though all of this threatens to push back against the kingdom of Christ and frighten his people, we must remember that Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, has how much authority? All authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. What that means is that when Christians move into an area, get this, When Christians physically move into an area and when they start living by the Bible in submission to the Lordship of Christ, they're posting eviction notices on this terra firma to all the forces of darkness in that area, telling them it's time for you to pack your bags and move out. This is the kingdom of Jesus, the walls of the kingdom of Jesus, pushing further out So the gates of hell, you see, are not prevailing against the kingdom of Jesus and its expansion. This is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said that his kingdom would fill the entire earth. And Nehemiah shows us that it is unbecoming of Christ's people, and it is certainly not humility, to act like it's only the other way around. Yes, the forces of darkness can Push back. Yes, they can reclaim territory when Christians refuse to obey, when they refuse to submit, when they refuse to repent, when they abdicate their duties, then darkness moves back in and begins to take over. That's why it's so important that we at Christ the King here in Clinton, Tennessee, continue to push God's kingdom and his father rule in our community and eventually to the ends of the earth. And this gets to the main point that I wanted to emphasize this morning. This idea of when humility works against us, when it actually becomes, you might say, sinful. Now, that sounds like an odd thing to say. Humility, of course you know, is one of the chief Christian virtues. Didn't Christ show us the greatness of humility when he considered not equality with God a thing to be grasped? He became a slave and even went so far as to become obedient to the point of death even death on a cross that of course from Philippians 2 doesn't god oppose the proud but give grace to the humble James chapter 4 those men who have been with us since the beginning of our planting here at Christ the King may remember a get together that we had at Aiden Espino's house back before we planted and i was asked the question what i hoped for most out of this congregation And my answer was a sense of humility, true Christian humility from all of us. J.C. Ryle said, the surest mark of true conversion is humility. He goes on to say, all converted people should labor to adorn the doctrine they profess by humility. If they can do nothing else, they should strive to be humble." So what do I mean by humility working the wrong way? By humility actually becoming a sin or the wrong thing? Well, it's been said that the battle for the West is a battle for the dictionary. If the slanderer cannot get us to join his side, he will send his troops into our camp on a subterfuge campaign in order to change the definitions of Christian virtues, making them vices. We believe that we're submitting to the word of God, but in reality, we're walking in pride or arrogance or lust or any kind of other sin. Now, this is going to come back around to Nehemiah 6. Give me just a moment. Satan has done this with words like love, course, service, leader, masculinity, equality, justice, gentleness, kindness, often referred to today as niceness, peace, unity, goodness, and of course, the word we're looking at this morning, humility. The Greek word for humility has to do with being low to the ground, which sounds basic, but think about how Christians today might encourage Nehemiah, based on our understanding of humility, to get as low to the ground as he possibly can, to be humble in his responses to his enemies, In verse 2, his presence, that's Nehemiah's presence, is requested at a private meeting, and he just flat out refuses. I love his response. He says, I'm doing a great work. Why should I leave it and come down to you? Now, if you just took that verse out of context, that does not sound like a very humble thing to say. You know, I've I've got really important business. Why would I hang out with you? Western churchgoers look at something like this and say, come on, Nehemiah, they're looking for open dialogue. Get over your pride. Go down there. See what they want. Remember, God opposes the proud. It sounds humble, but it's really foolish. Okay, we all know that. In verses 6 and 7, Nehemiah finds out that his name is being publicly slandered. His response, you're a bunch of liars and you're making stuff up. I love this guy. It's great. Again, the Western church replies, Nehemiah, why did you even respond to them? Turn the other cheek. You're so proud. You only care about your reputation. In verse 10, Shemaiah tries to frighten him into the house of God, and he sees through the ruse and stands strong, even when faced with death threats. American Christians say, Some ruler you are, Nehemiah. Feel like you have to overcompensate for your fear by trying to be brave? Aren't you an important figure to these people? Won't they need you to finish this job? Wouldn't God understand if you took refuge in his house just this once? How can the work go on if you keep playing this bravery card until you get yourself killed? I mean, you can imagine people responding in ways like this. This is the kind of humility that most of us were raised in, this kind of squishy, smarmy, introspective, self-obsessed pride with a humility name tag on it. You can take a firm stand for Christ and his kingdom and still at the same time be humble. (laughs) Doug Wilson once said, when David went out to face Goliath, he wasn't looking for a dialogue partner. (laughs) Well spoken. Did David lack humility? No, he just knew his place in the story and he submitted to it. That's humility. So did Jesus when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Christ didn't abdicate humility in that moment. So did Nehemiah when he responded to these last ditch efforts to take him out of the picture. The enemy of our souls would like to make us think that humility is merely the absence of a thing. The absence of pride, or awareness of our own limitations. People who define lowness this way often end up with their face in the dirt with a heart full of pride. Now think for just a minute of the Pharisees throwing dust on their heads, walking around wailing and calling a lot of attention to themselves. I heard one pastor define humility this way. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Now, there's two necessary parts to this term. You accept your station, the one that you've been put in, and you recognize that it was given to you, not by your choice, but by God. I take responsibility for what God has given me. If your humility can't stand before your enemies, And refute lies intended to undermine the expansion of the kingdom because that's the task that God gave you. It's not humility. It's exactly why I needed to hear what I heard last week about this false humility that I was dealing with. If your humility can't assess an insult thrown at you for proclaiming the whole counsel of God, measure it against scripture, and drop it for not measuring up, it's not humility. Let me ask you this. Can your humility destroy arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obedience of Christ and be ready in any moment to punish any disobedience to the lordship of Jesus? If it cannot, it is not biblical humility. Brothers, if you cannot look your wife in the eye, And tell her, without raising your voice or getting angry, that she just sinned against one of your children or you by speaking disrespectfully and out of her station. You are not being humble. No matter what you have heard all of your life, if you are not assuming the role that Jesus gave you as prophet, priest, and king in your home, no matter how good it feels to overlook an offense, you are not being humble. There is a time for overlooking an offense. Proverbs says a man's insight makes him slow to anger, and it is his honor to overlook transgression. But this does not mean that you should overlook every offense and certainly not use overlooking offenses as a means of dodging duty or feeling smug about yourself. Nehemiah understood this. You can imagine him thinking something along the lines of, this congregation knows that I love them, but that does not give a change to the fact that God gave me a job to do here. I will not jeopardize the mission of God by trying to be nice to the enemies of God. Chose those terms very carefully. I'm not going to jeopardize the mission of God by trying to be nice to the enemies of God. Remember, niceness, one of those loaded terms these days. Fathers, you have to lead in your home. Serving well in your home is a must- And will foster the virtue of humility only insofar as you do not forsake the givenness or the grace of your station. What God has bestowed to you to do. C.S. Lewis once said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble these days. Now this was written 80 years ago. It's already going on, the change of definitions. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said of him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking about himself at all. Now, real humility produces joy. Even a joy that others would be tempted to envy. Can you see why the nations are so angry at Nehemiah? This guy is so stable. He's so level-headed. i got to come up with some kind of accusation because what he has, I do not have. False humility always leads to fear. True humility fosters a sturdier faith. And to that end, sisters you may actually have it harder than the guys do. The Bible commands that women be meek, quiet, gentle, submissive, all terms that have been used and abused by the secular zeitgeist. And there will certainly be times when your husband's failings will require you to bear with him in love. That's the Bible commands. But overlooking serious sins in the home is not one of them. We were going to talk about this during the intimacy conversations this past weekend. But a woman who is being asked for intimacy multiple times a week is not being abused. A woman who is being neglected, threatened, spoken to in a rage, or is being physically harmed is also not being humble in bearing with her husband in love. She's enabling him. She should, in a loving way, address her husband's sin, and if he refuses to listen, she should come straight to the elders of the church. Sisters living in fear should never be confused with a posture of submission or humility. Living by faith and obedience to the Word of God is what humility looks like. And one last point of application on this. You see in verse 9 another one of Nehemiah's breath prayers. In the middle of this series of conflicts, which may have lasted several days or even weeks, Nehemiah stops to pray for himself. This is an area where Satan has robbed the church of potential glory, and that is praying for yourself. Don't pray for yourself. It's a very selfish thing to do. Always turn your attention to pray for others. when the Bible gives us account again and again and again, of people praying. For their own needs. The Psalms are replete with people asking God, you got to help me God. I've got a need. You've got to help me. When we get together to pray each week, I hear a variety of different offerings to God. Spontaneous thanksgivings, confession of sin, and all kinds of intercessions. But it is curious to me that people in the public prayer meeting on Wednesday night rarely pray for themselves. Beloved, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, the Lord did not respond by telling them to consider what their neighbor might think of their prayers. That ought to hit as a zing to everybody. Jesus never commanded us to think when we pray, oh, what might so-and-so think of me praying for myself? When you pray, first run a mental calculation of others and how your prayers might affect their impression of you. It's not what it says. That's the work of the slanderer. And honestly, while those thoughts make you feel really humble, I'm not going to pray for myself. They're the farthest thing from humility. All you're thinking about is yourself. Nehemiah doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would have run his prayers through a social grid. When he had a need, he took it straight to God. Nobody knows about your needs like you do. I'm not saying to only pray for yourself, of course. Refusing to voice your needs to the Lord in prayer meeting because you're concerned of what others might think, however, is selfish. It is. So knock it off and pray for yourself and others. Now, let's look briefly at this last section of text together, starting in verse 15. This is one of the most amazing things that I think I've ever read in the Bible. You get to find out how long this whole wall building project actually lasted. And Nehemiah tells us it was 52 days. That should strike you as a wow moment. This was from August to October. They built an entire wall, in many areas rebuilt an entire wall around the city of Jerusalem. And it's it's one of those things that most scholars are like, "Mm." corruption in the text. That's not right. Couldn't have been 52 days. There's no way. But Josephus, he he says that it took two years and four months. That's a, that's a much more realistic timeline. I will say that Josephus is generally a trustworthy source when it comes to history. I can also say that Josephus wrote 0% inspired Word of God. Just saying. It's great when contemporary accounts affirm what God said in his word, but there's no other piece of literature like this book, beloved. All of this, all of this text from beginning to end, including the long list of names that we're going to look at in chapter 7 next week, all of those are the very words of God. If God said it was 52 days, it was 52 days. And if you were raised like me, I was taught in youth group that it's okay to doubt that. The Bible's a hard book, there's things that don't seem to make sense. It's okay to have doubts. Everybody has doubts. Are you kidding me? This is the Word of God. What a satanic thought! You can look at this book and then you can have doubts about it. We can trust that these are the very words of God. Consider some further evidence from the texts that we've already been through in Nehemiah. As I mentioned earlier, they didn't have to rebuild the entire wall. There was a lot of restoration work that was going on. They were filling in breaches, setting back up gates that had been burned by fire. Only the eastern wall had to be built back up completely from its foundation. There's maps of this I can show if you're ever interested to see what this looked like. The other cardinal sides of the wall, the north, the west, the south, were the renovated ones, and the existing material was already there. These were huge stones. They just had to pick them back up and put them back in place. God also gave the Israelites great speed in building. The Lord said that he blessed their efforts. His favor was on them. The people all had one mind to build, They worked heartily as unto the Lord, and God made the work go very quickly. The excavation work done around the wall today also reveals that it was put together really, really fast. It was put together in haste. These excavations also show that the eastern wall was a little bit more rough cut than the rest of it, meaning they were trying to work fast, do it on site. If we take the date that's given here, the 25th of Elul, which is the beginning of October, and we start the stopwatch at Nehemiah's commissioning by the king, we can say that he completed his entire task in just under six months. Now, I want you to look at verse 16. It happened that when all of our enemies heard of it and... All the nations surrounding us saw it. Their confidence fell. And in their sin and in their lostness and in their hardness of heart, they could not deny, they knew that it was from our God that this work had been accomplished. 52 days. They heard of it. They saw it with their own eyes. And they have absolutely no answer. That had to be God. The entire book of Nehemiah, the enemies of God have been wanting to frighten Nehemiah. And here at the end, their last-dish efforts, they're the ones that are afraid. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those who devise evil against me be turned back and humiliated. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul, from Psalm 35, verses 4 and 7. Now, this makes sense of this political scramble that takes place in the last three verses, verses 17 to 19. Men of importance are like, oh no, the wall's done, now what do we do? Let's try and repair the damage that's been done to these relationships, because this whole thing, it's over, we lost There's no question of stopping the work anymore. Let's make friends while we can. You can see there at the end of verse 19, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, the the Ammonite slave, as we learned about in an earlier chapter, has not given up his hatred of Nehemiah or the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, these verses, I believe, were meant to animate our efforts for building the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us marching orders and his own spirit to help us, and he said, Go forth and disciple the nations. When we sin, we repent to God corporately if necessary, and then we get right back at it. Can God help us transform the city of Clinton in our lifetime? If he can build this wall in 52 days, I believe that Clinton can be transformed in our lifetime. With our efforts, the kingdom of God pushing the darkness further and further away. I wouldn't categorize our church as a post-millennial church. The elders are still researching. I talked to you about that at the beginning of the year. We're slowly making our way through these books, giving the different perspectives. I don't think it's a secret to anyone here that our church is definitely post-millennial leaning. If that frustrates you, I would ask you if you attended or at least listened to the conference talks put out by Manorville Fellowship on this particular perspective. If you haven't even tried to hear the other side, no complaining. The thing I love about post-millennialism is that it feeds the zeal for working on the kingdom because God has promised that the Great Commission will be a success. It galvanizes our efforts. Regardless of your end times view... We can all say, to some extent, that Jesus will be victorious. So be warned, beloved, that one of the greatest joy sucking and motivation killing things the church is promoting today is this silly false humility stuff. Nehemiah would have never made it as a leader in the church of Jesus Christ today. Don't assert yourself too much. That's not true humility. Real leaders serve. Real leaders don't grasp for power. Real leaders listen to everyone's perspectives. The kind of humility that pleases God makes friends, not enemies. Tell that to the Lord Jesus, who, the most humble man that ever lived, had a few of his own enemies. It all boils down to this. Beloved, people hate God, and they hate what is made in his image, and they especially hate when his image bearers display ambition For Jesus Christ, the God that they hate, and his kingdom, because those believers love Jesus. So they slander it. They call it pride and extremism and jihadism. But I think, in reality, you pull the cover off, the shoe's on the other foot, to mix metaphors. Chesterton once said, It is not bigotry to be certain you are right. It is bigotry to be unable to imagine how you might have possibly gone wrong. Think about that for a minute. The shoe's on the other foot. Church recognize our enemies and their efforts against us for what they are. They're sinful and they're a distraction. A distraction with no power behind them. It's just like the last-ditch efforts of Sanballat and Tobiah to somehow stop this work on the kingdom of God. But you can't stop it. There's no stopping it. When God, through His Spirit, reveals His grace to us in Christ Jesus, something dramatic changes. We suddenly want to please God. We want to maximize His glory and extend His Father rule to the ends of the earth. When Jesus saves us, we become those who, as we keep our eyes on Him, Jeremy prayed this in his pastoral prayer, are no longer conformable to the world, the flesh or the devil. We get zealous for the work of God alone, knowing that our work will ultimately bless our unbelieving neighbors as the earth is further conformed to its originally intended purpose. And every family and every house and every business and every church that courageously preaches Christ And his gospel and refuses to compromise and repents when they do, takes the walls of this kingdom and pushes them just a little further out. And the forces of darkness have to leave. What is this? This is realism that recognizes grace. It is true humility. And don't be afraid to, as Nehemiah did, respond to distraction with a full-throated, I am doing a great work of the Lord, and I can't come down to you. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? After all, that's what a truly humble person would say. Let's pray. Father, There's such confusion about terms, definitions, and how we can truly live for you. Let us be unafraid to come to the word of God and see the men and women of the faith who have walked humbly before you, daring to do great things for your name because of their fear of you and their love of you. And let us go forth in the name of Jesus to spread his gospel and to do the same. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.